Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. back to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Uh, we have an interesting episode today. Uh, we're going to get to the mailbag in a little bit, and we'll be highlighted by a really interesting question we got about the best top 10 coaches that uh, we've covered since being around the sports. Stu and I have slightly different windows of how long that is, but it's a good 25 years or so. Uh, but before we get to that, we are going to dig in to what's going on around college sports. Uh, We thought it'd be really helpful to bring in a Power 5 AD, and we have one of the best at one of the biggest schools uh, joining us today, and that is Ross Bjork from Texas A&M. And there's just, this is a really fluid situation, and so he's explaining he's fresh off of a daily call that he has with the other ADs in the SEC. So we wanted to bring Ross on to get that perspective. In talking to ADs, you know, this week, Ross, there's every time I talk to somebody, there's a new issue that, oh, I hadn't thought of that, that you guys have to be dealing with right now with all of your athletes scattered around the country back home, trying to be students virtually, trying to be athletes virtually. You know, what, what is the most for you? What are the, like a few of the almost logistical or procedural issues that are the hardest to deal with right now? Well, I think it's that detachment piece, you know, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm working from home and, and we're all used to seeing each other face to face or being able to walk down a hallway of a building and, you know, walk into Coach Fisher's office or Buzz Williams' office or see student athletes in the training room. And so, the biggest thing is, um, you know, we're all here for our student athletes and, you know, how do we, how do we take care of them? How do we monitor them and how do we have a daily operation? And so that, that's been the hardest part is you, you just can't touch and feel, you know, what you do every single day. And so a lot of virtual settings, uh, our academic staff has been uh, hosting about 150 uh, Zoom meetings uh, per day with, with student athletes around classwork and advising and things like that. And so the biggest thing for me is the detachment piece uh, because it, it can get lonely. It can be scary. You can watch a news report and see something that flashes across about, you know, college sports and, and then the what ifs start to come into play. So um, it, it's really that piece of it for me that has been the hardest part is we're so used to human interaction uh, in college sports and we just don't have that right now. And and we're all yearning for, you know, when that comes back. Hey, Ross, I'm curious. Uh, in the role as an athletic director, you you guys all do so much work that is way down the road. I mean, it's like, you know, we'll see games scheduled 10 years from now that, that people will put on the schedule. And, and you guys are looking way ahead a lot of times because it is such a big business job. 
uh, from talking to some coaches around the country, especially this past week, one of the things I've heard, and we all know how much football money drives college sports and colleges, quite honestly. So I don't want you to get into whether, you know, the speculation of five months from now, if we're going to have a season or not, or, or are they going to delay the season? Is it going to go into the spring or any one of these scenarios? But how do you, in the role you're in, kind of manage, okay, we're going to try to think big picture. We don't have a lot of this. We have limited information coming in and everything seems to be changing. We're kind of in uncharted waters. So how do you manage that wearing the hats you have as an athletic director where you're trying to look long-term at the same time? Bruce, I, I think it, uh, we have to, you know, hopefully rely on our experiences and, and, and hopefully our leadership, you know, ability that, you know, we have to be, uh, we have to be optimists, right? We have to be uh, believers. And, you know, I have a saying that if I, you know, if I don't believe in my program, then, then who will, Right. Um, so we're sort of the ultimate cheerleaders, you know, for our, our programs. And so I think you have to you have to sort of be built that way in college athletics. But then you also have to have the realist hat on. Um, and maybe those are the things that you have to keep, you know, more private uh, and more personal. Maybe it's a smaller group that you talk to about, you know, realities. So you have to you have to wear both hats. Um, and that's not to be disingenuous, you know, one way or another. It's just you can't be Pollyannish. You can't be unrealistic. You can't have your head buried in the sand, all those, all those uh, descriptions of that. And so, you know, to me, you have to just take, you know, one piece of information, you know, at a time, realizing that if you look at how fast we got to this point, you know, just three weeks ago, we canceled the SEC tournament. It seems like three months ago. And then you map that out, you know, again, what happens five months from now? I think it's way too early. Uh, to your point. And so to me, you have to be pragmatic. You have to be enthusiastic. You have to believe you have to provide hope. Uh, you can have real conversations with people. I mean, right now we're, we're going through a discussion on our campus about, uh, you know, what happens to summer camp. Right. And so you have to be able to be honest, you know, about that. So I think people want the truth. They want honesty but they also want the hope and optimism and, and some sort of forecasting. And so, you know, we're all trying to keep up with all that information that, that we're all getting. And so that, that's how I try to balance it uh, throughout, you know, each day. And it, it can move from one point to the next or one hour to the next. And then you have to, you know, be realistic about that. So that's how we're uh, trying to focus on all of this right now. Ross, obviously people are becoming concerned about potential financial ramifications. Obviously, you know, you've already lost some revenue from SEC and NCAA tournaments being canceled. Um, there's you know a possible added cost now of, of if spring athletes start coming back now, and then it's not even getting into what happens if some or all of football goes away next year. Um, now, from the outside, people would say, "Oh, Texas A&M, you know, they have a hundred fifty million dollar, one hundred sixty million dollar budget." I think uh, their football coach makes seventy five million dollars. Like they're made of money; they should be fine. Tell us what it is in reality. Like, what is the margin there where you would start to get really concerned about, you know, tangible impact? Yeah, you know, uh, I've had people say that, you know, hey, send us, uh, you know, some of your money to help us uh, during, <laughs> this, during this time. And I'm like, hey, not so fast. Um, you know, I, I think probably three or four years ago here at Texas A&M, we, you know, they're probably counting every $100. Uh, now we're counting every penny. You know, every penny matters. And so... 
you know, we've already gone through, like you said, you know, a reduction. And so there'll be less revenue in the FY20 uh, budget. So as we close this fiscal year, we, we may be able to balance that out with some cost savings, you know, operational costs, you know, things like that, because the sports got canceled, travel costs. So we're not quite sure, but we think it may, you know, we may balance out a little bit uh, for this year. But then, yeah, then you look at, you know, what happens to ticket sales, what happens to donations, um, you know, there isn't really uh, a plan for if you don't have, you know, football season. I mean, the, the financial impact of that is is so, you know, uh, monumental that you, what would you do? How would you operate? And that's that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And so uh, all of those sort of scenarios and all of those modelings that we're putting together um, you know, you have to just map out kind of in layers, right? If this happens, you know, what's the impact? If this happens, what's the impact? Uh, we haven't really, you know, I've seen some other programs, you know, take some measures right now. Um, you know, we don't know what the true numbers would be. We don't know what the true impact would be. So we haven't really done specifics yet. Uh, but we also know that, hey, football is a big deal. Football uh, is the economy here in Bryan College Station. Uh, it would have a ripple effect not only for our budget, uh, but for many businesses, many community leaders. And so those are all the things that uh, have to go you know, into the analysis. When it comes down to this, one of the things that somebody else asked me, this is a football coach, brought this up this week, said, who is going to be the person who's going to really be making, who are the people who are going to be making the decisions when we get an all clear? And is it just going to be, come back to, okay, Greg Sankey's going to make the decision from based on the people he listens to for the SEC and the uh, you're going to have Bob Bowlesby for the Big 12 and Larry Scott for the Pac-12. Uh, how much how much feedback and information is the NCAA going to provide? I mean, is it a combination of the governors? I mean, it's that's one of the things that is interesting on a next level part about this is because you're talking about health issues, especially widespread health issues, not just for the people on the football field, but in your campus community. So for people who are wondering that, you know, you're on these calls, where do you think that is going to be headed? That, that, that's a great question, Bruce. And uh, actually, I spoke, uh, I spoke to a Rotary Club here in College Station this morning on, uh, on Zoom. I was their guest speaker, first time I've ever been a virtual guest speaker. And uh Ironically, one of the questions from that group was exactly what you just asked. Who makes the call? Is it the SEC? Is it the NCAA? Is it the, the state governments? You know, to me, we have to rely on health experts as, as a first sort of layer to that. But here's the complicating factors is let's say Texas is in a better position than let's say Colorado. We play Colorado in the third week of the season. What if Colorado says, Hey, you can play Texas A&M, but we can't. You know, we're not, our, our state isn't in the clear yet. Uh, you know, what happens with all of that? And so I think the decision will be multi-layered. I think we have to, one, follow the health experts, like I said, and then it's going to be, you know, each institution working with their state governments, working with local health experts to say, can you travel? Can you have guests on your campus? So, I think we're going to have to have a lot of input and I, and I'm not sure that there's one single voice, you know, as we know, you know, the NCAA doesn't run the college football playoff. They don't run, 
the bowl game, you know, scenarios, there's rules that we follow, but college football, you know, sort of has this independent structure, you know, and so those kind of things, I'm not sure there's one voice. I think it's going to be multifaceted, you know, hopefully the autonomy conferences can work together. The other FBS conferences can work together. You know, our state governments, you know, can work together. Uh, to me, that's how it has to has to go uh, as we go into this. So uh, I think it's a great question, and there's not a clear pathway at this point in time. And then I think the other thing that maybe people don't consider enough, you know, as when the NFL or the NBA, any of these pro leagues are making the decision, they're not dealing with college campuses, right? So at the end of the day, no matter what you guys discuss as as athletic officials, how much of this is just come September or whatever is a university president comfortable with having people on his campus? Yeah, that's another great point. Another layer to this, you know, our right now our, you know, residence halls here at Texas A&M are, are open. You know, there's about 2,000 students who are still here on campus. We have about 190 student athletes that are still here in College Station that are off campus. And so, you know, the, the, the university is technically open, you know, for essential personnel. But if that goes on longer, Right. You know, what happens to your student rec centers? What happens to your other student facilities if they're closed? But athletics can be open. You know, again, that's where you've got to we've got to work with our university leadership uh, to make these kind of decisions. And then, you know, just optically, you know, what does that look like? So those are all the things that are layered in, you know, to this equation as we uh, as we go into, you know, April, May, you know, June, July. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The last point, you know, you're talking about it. And again, I've been to A&M a lot. I don't know you know, how many international students are there, but I know from talking, I did a story last week about Chip Kelly and UCLA, and there were a lot of international students who couldn't go home. And I know there was one specific example of a walk-on he had who's has an immunocompromised brother or sibling. And that parent was like, hey, can you keep this kid still there just because they were, you know, didn't want to risk him coming in the house and maybe having something. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, wait, if everything's on lockdown, people are going back to school. But the other factor I think that, you know, more and more people have realized is, or at least people outside, I'm sure, you know, obviously you were aware of it. It's just, there's a lot of, a lot of families who their kids depend on, on their schooling as part of their being fed. And so I know I talked to a couple athletes who are staying around campus because they're getting the grab and go meals and it's, it's kind of more part of their normal than if they were to go home. And, you know, that's a struggle for a lot of, a lot of families, especially now. Yeah. One, one of the things I was on a call earlier with our campus leadership and, uh, you know, with this whole, you know, crisis, you know, affecting higher education and the federal government and the, you know, the, the subsidy that that's coming, you know, through, uh, through the federal government is what happens to the cost of attendance number, right? Cause that, that number is, you know, organized by the universities. Well, we can pay cost of attendance, you know, to full ride scholarship recipients, you know, does that number go up? Does it go down? You know, to your point, a lot of that money sometimes may go back to families, you know, to, to help out, uh, Pell Grant money, you know, those kind of things, highly impactful uh, in so many layers that uh, I think it was you, Stu, that asked the question earlier about, 
you know, the, you know, sort of the different layers to this that, and we don't even think about, you know, half the things right now because they haven't hit our desk yet, but they're, but they will as, uh, as more time goes by. So that's one of them too, Bruce, that you brought up. It's a, it's a great point that we have to manage. Yeah. I just think the last thing before, you know, we let you go, I'm curious as to, as to, what do you think will be, you know, eventually the games will get back, you know, we're hoping sooner than later, obviously, but what do you think will be changed for, you know, maybe that people will either appreciate more that they didn't have or something going forward in the wake of all this, that maybe will be different for you uh, as somebody who came up through the ranks of, of college athletics and, and now maybe see it in a different light a little bit. That, that's a great question. And, and I've tried to contemplate, you know, some, you know, realm of that. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that will be a, a positive will be uh, the, the, the togetherness aspect of it. You know, the, the reunion, the class reunion, the team reunion, you know, the tailgate party with your buddies or families that, that tailgate together. Um, I think more meaning around relationships is, is what I hope. Uh, will will come out of this more meaning around the personal interaction and you know we were already obviously way on the on the side of we're so dependent on our devices and you know we're always looking down at our phones and no one's talking to each other and all those kind of things and and hopefully that piece of it will be a, a lot better uh, but then I, I think there there could be a, a recalibration of just how we do business right I mean you know, the, the resources that are expended, uh, is there a resetting, a recalibration of all of those things? One, out of necessity, because your budgets are, are less, uh, but two, that, hey, it's just the right thing to do. You know, do we need all of these things? Um, so I could see sort of the business piece of it, but I also think the relationship, the camaraderie, the passion. Uh, we, we know that live sports content is so valuable, you know, to our TV partners. So perhaps being in the stadium becomes more valuable because we didn't have this, you know, for so long. So those are the things that I've thought about, Bruce, um, as this thing unfolds and as more time, uh, as we're detached uh, for more time, those things are, are coming to mind. Fascinating things to think about. And, and I know we will continue to think about over the coming months. Ross, we thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. Thank you, guys. All right, Bruce, let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first one is uh, a great question. Uh, it's going to be controversial, I have a feeling. David Eisen, gentlemen, you know, he's referencing our top 25 coaches we did recently. I'd be very interested in what you come up with if you added in those who coached during the time you've covered the sport but are no longer in the game. I assume Saban and Dabo would still make your top 10, but who else would? And where would guys like Urban Meyer, Pete Carroll, and Bill Snyder rank? Um, I took that to mean we should basically just list our top 10 coaches of since we've been covering the sport. Yeah, all right. So I am. I covered it a little longer than Stu, but as I thought about this, I didn't cover Jimmy Johnson. He was a little before my time. Uh, but this is... You know, what, what I wondered about as, as, you know, I looked at this was there are some coaches that were around when I covered the sport that fit in that window, and but I don't think they were at their best. The prime example of this is Lavelle Edwards from BYU. Great coach, 
uh, you know, amazing legacy. He coached till 2000. So he, he was, you know, he would fit into your window as well. But when, you know, towards the end, I wouldn't say, you know, those last couple of years would fit. So I'm going to preface that by saying, you know, with all respect to Lavelle Edwards, just by how this is, I won't, um, you know, I won't in, include him here. Um, but, but towards that, I want to ask you, how do you, how, what do, what do we do with, with, let's say Tom Osborne, you know, hall of fame coach. I mean, he was really good at the, you know, right at, um, he was great right at the, uh, the time when I started covering the sport, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't around that much longer as a coach. Right. So, so a good example of that for me, my starting point was 1999, um, Bobby Bowden was still the coach at Florida State, and he won a national title that year. But that was, you know, and then he had one more good year, and then it was downhill from there. So, I think you, you know, I, I guess I'm saying I'm not going to treat it as because Bobby Bowden overlapped with my era, then I'm going to consider his entire career for it. Uh, I think that's how we have to do. It. I think that's the best way to do it. Uh, otherwise, you'd basically just be we would basically just be ranking the greatest coaches of all time starting shortly after Bear Bryant. So in that regard, I probably had maybe two years of Tom Osborne. So, you know, again, similar to Lavelle Edwards, at least from this prism, I'm going to, you know, tip my hat to him, but not for this, you know, not for the discussion. So I assume our number ones are the same and that's Nick Saban, correct? Correct. Greatest, uh, great. He has already, to me, uh, solidified himself as the greatest coach of all time. Give me your top five, and let's see if they're the same as my top five. I know one's probably not going to be because I already heard what you said about Bobby Bowden, but go ahead. Uh, number one, Saban. Number two, okay. Urban Meyer. Number three, Dabo. Okay. Number three, Dabo Swinney. Okay. Number four, Bob Stoops. Number five, Pete Carroll. Wow, we have a we have a different top four. My number one, and maybe this, you know, my number one is Saban. My number two is Dabo. My number three is Pete Carroll. My number four is Urban. My number five is Jimmy Johnson. My number six is Bob's. I'm sorry. My number five is Bobby Bowden. My number six is Bob Stoops. I feel like we both might be shortchanging Bob Stoops a little bit, given that, I mean, his run began about the same time mine did. And some, you know, if you want to be a Bob Stoops critic and pick him apart, you could say he only won one national title, right? But I think he played in three more of those games, and he basically won, I think he averaged a big t- t- 12 title every other season for 18 years. So I still have him behind three guys who won multiple national titles. But you have him behind, you said behind, tell me again the guys that you have above him. Uh, Saban, Dabo, Pete Carroll, Urban, Bobby Bowden. The one, the one I have him above, the below that you don't is Bobby Bowden. I mean, I think obviously career achievement, you're going to go Bobby Bowden. But if we're during my time covering the sport, Bobby Bowden had far again far more mediocre than yours. Yeah, still right. No, I mean, if you started covering it earlier in his run, then I think you probably had an. uh, Well, let me ask you another question: Do you have Steve Spurrier in your top ten? I do not. I thought about him. I don't. Because that's another one that kind of tread, like I was too late for his national title at Florida, but he was still 
going for a few more years, and then I think he had a great run at South Carolina. He is number 10 on my list. I, I had Mac Brown at number 10. It was either Mac Brown or Steve Spurrier. That's funny. It was the same thing for me, and I went with Spurrier. Uh, here, I'll just um, fill mine out since you got my top five. Okay. So five was Carroll. Um, now, here's a guy who, again, right on the line, but I do think I, I had enough of him to merit coming in here, and that's Bill Snyder at number six. Um, Chris Peterson, number seven. Jim Tressel, okay. number eight. Gary Patterson, number nine. Steve Spurrier, number ten. Wow, Gary Patterson makes the list. Again, there's a guy um, whose run began around the time I started covering the sport, and it's been a phenomenal run. Okay, so there is a name on here. We have relatively similar lists, especially considering. So I have Bob Stoops, six. I have Bill Snyder, seven. Uh, I have Jim Tressel, eight. Chris Peterson, nine. Here was the wild card name, and honestly, I, you know, I was torn about this. Joe Paterno. Um, yeah, that is you know, that I'm is getting, a tough I'm, one. I'm taking him. I'm t- you know like it's hard to even say that name without it bringing up a lot of you know it's the most polarizing name on this list, and you know again I'm 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 taking in I guess it would be like 18 years before his last season, and there was a lot of good football in that run, so I don't know. Um, so I start covering it in 99, and in 2000, he began a run of four losing seasons in five years. Uh, he had a couple more good years towards the end, like the Michael Robinson team that uh, I think finished number three in the country. The 2008 team finished very high. But for the most part, Penn State football wasn't what it was, certainly when you started covering the sport. Uh, like, what, what year are you using as your starting point, I should ask? I was using... Uh really the year i started at espn which was 1994 well there you go that's his undefeated team that year yeah i frankly so don't i don't th- i don't see how you couldn't have him in your top 10 unless you're going to disqualify him over jerry sandusky i th- that's the i mean i'm being honest like just when we say his name you know there is so much now attached to it and it was like okay you know like steve spurrier is plenty deserving i know it didn't you know it kind of tailed off just like it tailed off for mac at texas it certainly really tailed off in a bad way for spurrier at south carolina but um you know it's it's one of those things that that uh i don't know i just kind of looked at it looked at it a certain way um i'm curious if we did this exercise two years ago do you have Jim Harbaugh on your list? Uh, he would definitely be in consideration. I don't think he... I mean, everybody on here has been a college football coach for a lot longer than he has, so I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, when we first started doing our these lists every season, once he came to back to Michigan, I had him in the top five because I was still going off Stanford and the 49ers. Yeah, and I mean... It was remarkable what he did at Stanford. Um, you know, just like, look, it's, we didn't have, neither one of us had the full run of Bill Snyder. I mean, I certainly had a longer version of it, but um, what he did there was pretty remarkable. Um, but I do want to sell for Bobby Bowden. Again, it's a little different for me than it is for you, but here's what I'm going off of. And this is, this is the run that I got, maybe that you didn't get. These were the rankings. Four, four, three, 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 one. 
Like, I mean, your first year, I guess he won the national title. Right. So. Yeah, so, I mean, if but, you if you pushed my clock back five years, he would be close to number one. He'd be in the top five, certainly. And, you know, the more you get of Bill Snyder, I think you have to have him. I mean, Bill Snyder, you could make the case Bill Snyder is, I know it's a completely different set of criteria or, or standard than what you're measuring Saban or Urban Meyer by. But, I mean, you could make the case it was the greatest coaching job anyone has ever done to turn that doormat of a program that that almost lifeless program into a team that was a regular top 10 team for close to a decade not to nitpick too much with you but if you're kind of dinging bobby bowden because you didn't have his window i'm looking at bill snyder now you didn't get the like you're kind of if you're using your 1999 as a prism you had three top 10 seasons and then really only three top 25 seasons you're basing them off of and you're i guess you're you're grandfathering in the the heavy lift he did to get them there but at that point like well you know what I mean, I, 98 the 98 season the 98 season i was it's I, i've always had a hard time deciding if i should say i covered college football that year you know the job i was at abc it was my first year out of college i was basically in the office they didn't really send me anywhere but I was writing about college football, and that was his best season of his whole career. So that's probably influencing it. All right, Stu, this question is from Brian Meyer. Stu and Bruce, it seems there is a very real possibility that next season will start late and be limited to conference play. If non-conference games are eliminated, how does that impact Notre Dame? Would they cancel their season or just play round, round robin against the other independents? They probably couldn't join a conference in time for next season, but it would force their hand in joining a conference as a hedge against something like this happening in the future. That's a good question. It's, it's, I hadn't thought of it from the Notre Dame perspective. No, I hadn't either. But I appreciate that he has found a way to, to um, you know, put the, the evergreen, age-old, is this the thing that will force Notre Dame to join a conference question to tie it to coronavirus. Um, nothing has, has has worn them down yet. Will this be the thing? We have no idea how this would work if they really do try to take it from that approach. I know this, the whole reason, or not the whole reason, but a big reason we're talking about that they've got to do whatever it takes to save the season is they don't want to lose that TV money. And I can tell you that the TV networks don't want to lose Notre Dame. So I think they would be protected. I think the ACC, for one, would make sure that they get to play their ACC games. I don't think USC wants to not play Notre Dame. Like I'm sure they would, they would be able to work something out. I think the one that would you'd have to worry about more is BYU. Um, they're they're an independent as well as as are a couple other schools um, who are dependent on you know some Power Five teams and others squeezing a game in against them. So uh, I think it's probably too early to be truly. Um, looking at that way, but it is, I mean, it, it just shows you that there's a lot of different angles to this that you don't even necessarily think about. And certainly when people just kind of casually throw around, oh, we'll just skip the non-conference part of the season. That is a great question. What about Notre Dame? Um, but no, I don't think it'll force them to join a conference. Yeah. And I, I would think that when everything gets sorted out, I think that whether it's a truncated season or not, or the ex- or the season honestly gets expanded. I mean, look, I don't think anybody, uh, nobody knows at this point because we don't know what it's going to be like three weeks from now, much less three months from now. But it would not at all surprise me if they started the season late 
that the season extended. And I know that it would like, Hey, that's going to go into other semesters as you know, as our, our guest, uh, from Texas A&M explains, I mean, football money is, is so big for these universities that that is going to be a big factor. Now, I think there's other issues that go on with a delayed season, but again, everyone's going to have to react to it because we're in uncharted waters. Maybe we just combine the 2020 and 2021 seasons into one long season with like a break in the middle. I'm, so, sure, the, I'm sure the kids who are going to the NFL will probably think differently on that, though. Well, they wouldn't. They would play in the first half, and then in the second half, uh, second session, they would be cycled out for the incoming freshmen. Are you saying that with a straight face? No, but. I, can you believe? I mean, it's only April second. Like, what do we? What? How many different versions and scenarios of this are we going to dream up over the next three months? Do you think? Uh, Chad Justice, Raleigh, North Carolina, is well known that with the moved up recruitment schedule, when a new coach is hired, that recruiting class is usually not that great. It's always that first full year of recruiting that set up the coach's future. You would have to assume that this virus is impacting newer staff's ability to recruit more than others. Would another mediocre recruiting class? Will, with another mediocre recruiting class, are most of these new coaches now set up to fail before even coaching their first game? So in other words, Bruce. No, I get okay. it. I mean, that that yeah. question, I think, is too, really two-pronged because I think the front end of it, as Chad starts to get at, now we've seen coaches get fired after two and three seasons. I think what's really problematic is m- – Almost no one had close to a full spring. A lot of schools didn't have any spring. So you're talking about new staffs who haven't had really any on-the-field work with their with their players in the spring. So they're going to be so behind. And I think when, when everybody says, well, everybody's kind of in the same boat, well, they're not if, if you've had a level of continuity. If you have a completely new staff, you're adjusting to players, they're adjusting to systems. I mean, never mind the recruiting part. They're going to be so far behind. And again, look, I mean, obviously there's there's bigger real life issues beyond that. But I think when you're talking about just that, um, I think that is going to be a pretty steep hill for first year coaches to, to navigate when when there is football back, because, you know, you talk to people inside the sport and one of the things that comes up is, well, if it's. You know, if everything is is squeezed down timing wise, I don't think people a lot of people realize how critical just the physical health of getting guys in football shape. So there are not injuries or some serious issues that happen to them just from a conditioning standpoint. So there's that. But then there's just talking about the actual scheme and timing issues. And it's it's a multi pronged challenge that I think Chad is is tapping into there. Imagine being Mel Tucker right now. He got off to a late enough start as it was, not getting that job till February and then having to put together a staff. Then he's not getting spring practice. He's, I mean, he's in terms of this coming recruiting cycle, uh, you know, everybody else that has a, a coach in place already got off to a faster start than they did. I mean, it's not unrealistic to think that this sets his, what was already going to be a rebuilding project back a full year. Um, and that's probably true with a lot of these coaches who are coming in. It's even worse if you're the guy who replaced Mel Tucker, if you because you got an even later. Start. Correct, correct. Um, we'll have to see if like everybody will give these guys like an amnesty. Like, okay, we 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 agree not to judge you before the third year 
Um, but I doubt it. But also think about it, Stu, and I'm not saying this is the case for, for Calderola, Colorado, or even Mel at, at Michigan State, but one of the things that is becoming obvious is these, we're going to be in a different financial realm in the wake of all this, and colleges most certainly will because of of all of this impacting and and them. So, you know, does that mean schools are going to make different decisions? Does that mean they're going to be asking uh, asking coaches for to take less money? I mean. There's a lot of stuff that is a big TBD that's playing into this. Iowa State actually announced on Wednesday something to that effect that they're, they didn't ask them to take pay cuts, but they're putting basically a freeze on salaries and um, withholding bonuses for this coming year, which is, I think, will end up being pretty standard, right? If this prolong, how, depending on how prolonged this is, that may even seem like a modest. Um, sacrifice by the time it's all said and done. I thought where you were going was we came out last year that Georgia, Georgia's budget spent, they spent a million dollars just on recruiting. And so what is so expensive about recruiting for these guys? It's that they are chartering planes or taking private planes to go to Texas to, to go to a kid's high school and just let the kid know that they've been there and then get back on the plane a half hour later I'm wondering if we go through a full cycle or an extended cycle of FaceTime recruiting, if schools will realize, you know what, that's an expense we could probably be cutting back on. Um, yes, we want them to be able to see that you know, it should definitely be, be able to pay for them to come to campus once and maybe a coach makes one home visit. But do we really need to be spending a million dollars flying people around the country when we just learned from this, this uh, saga that you can get a lot done over Zoom and FaceTime? I don't know. It's very early in this process. And I just think that, you know, a lot of us are going to, we're going to be speculating because there's a lot of time to speculate. And this is so, as you said a bit ago, this is so early in the process. I mean, it's April 2nd as we're taping this and, and uh, who knows what, what this is going to look like two weeks from now. We will pick this up again next week. Please send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. Also, as I said last week, we welcome your suggestions for potential guests as we um, continue to look for people who can come on and, and give perspectives on their experiences during this time. We'll see you guys next week. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic.